on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, research into certain types of seaweed for use as human food. So the next thing we'll be looking at the other side of this work. So I've looked at the dietary minerals, but now what can be possibly toxic in in seaweeds that we might have to watch out for before we can turn around and say to people, um, you know, seaweed's great to eat. And the rise in popularity of goat meat in Tasmania. For goat meat, the demand is really high, actually. I was surprised um, in Tasmania, and it's only growing, which is fantastic because I find that I probably a rather underutilised protein. It is quite lean. It's very flavoursome. Yeah, have you ever tried goat meat? It's becoming very popular. That story coming up. Maybe a seaweed slash goat recipe could work. More on seaweed from the International Conference in Hobart coming up as well. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday and hope you're well. The day is going accordingly. And also on the program today, an investigation into possible outbreaks of mad cow disease in Brazil, the world's largest beef exporting company or country at least. And also new cases of Varroa found in new areas of New South Wales. Plus, as usual, we check the weather. Take your thoughts on any issues via the text line at number 0438 922 First up today, seaweed. And you've probably consumed this product already today without knowing it. Seaweed is found in all sorts of things from toothpaste, chocolate, nasal sprays, so where do you start if you want to commercialise a seaweed extract? The 750 species of seaweed found in waters off Tasmania. Our reporter Larissa Smith had a chat with consultant Helen Fitton at the International Seaweed Symposium, which is on at the moment in Hobart. Well, seaweed's a bit of a hot topic at the moment, isn't it? So I would say there are several things you've got to consider. And I've just given my talk on that here at the International Seaweed Symposium. So... In the beginning, you need to think about whether you should. Just because you can doesn't mean to say you should. So have you got a resource or have you secured your resource? And that's the first thing. Have you secured your intellectual property and what is your intellectual property? And next, have you actually got the money to do this? Um, You're going to need some deep pockets for, say, a drug development pathway um, or alternatively, will people work for you for free? And that's a big no. (laughs) Unless you're a student. (laughs) I don't know, you you might. (laughs) I'm really, really nice to you. (laughs) And then where do you go from there? Well, after that, you've really got to consider the regulatory framework that you need to work within. And that's going to be different for every country and different for each pathway you would go down. I talked today just about human health pathways, but also you might be commercialising an extract into agriculture or into food or for an aspect of industry. There's some really, really interesting industrial um, uses for seaweed extracts. But today, we were talking about human health. So medical devices, drugs, nutraceuticals, cosmetics. Is that the the growth in the market? Is is that where you're seeing a lot of investment um, being pushed towards uh, nutraceuticals? I would say some, I think there are established businesses which have seaweed extracts in nutraceuticals. And nutraceuticals is especially interesting because it's got such a huge market growth. 
After the pandemic broke out, the sales of nutraceuticals in the US, France, the UK were between 40 and 60% higher than they had been the year before. And why is that? I think people were obviously trying to support their own health during the time of a pandemic. I think there are several access to health services was difficult. And I would say the other things that are in general driving the nutraceuticals market are an aging population. We're all getting a little bit middle-aged. <laughs> but those market drivers do have an effect. But no, you ask me whether the investment in Australia is going specifically into that, and I'd say no. I think um, there's a huge growth at the moment in the agricultural sector, and that's where a large bulk of the seaweed biomass that's being developed will go to. What are some of the seaweed species that are best suited to research and, and future production for agriculture? Basically some of the big kelps are, are fantastic for that because you've got massive biomass. And what's really good about these big kelps and this kind of agriculture development, it can mitigate the need for the use for antibiotics and other chemicals. So once you've got your financial backing, you've, you've painted your, your product and you've got a, a business case, how do you sell this to the consumer? Because it's, a, it's an international business, isn't it? Okay, so you might be in the business-to-business space So you've developed your seaweed extract, you have all your evidence, it's validated, you know what it does, and you've got your regulations pinned down. You may be selling on to, for example, someone who formulates a product, say a cosmetic or a nutraceutical. Alternatively, you may be all the way through to the consumer, um, in which case your, your customer is the final user. Um, How do you do that? Well, I think there are several ways you can do it. Um, You can use e-tailing, in other words, selling via the Internet. It's getting very popular now. But you have to educate your audience, and you need to make sure that everybody knows what it is and also what it isn't. There's a lot of competing claims out there in that health space, so, uh, so it can get a bit confusing. In terms of nutraceuticals, you can't make a claim unless you can make a validated claim, and that's something which you... Um, have to look to the regulator to work out whether you have enough evidence to make a claim. For example, you can make claims. You can say it contains iodine, and iodine is essential for brain health and so on. Those are valid claims to make. But say um, you've developed an ingredient for a cosmetic, and we say it makes you incredibly beautiful. Um, (laughs) Which we don't need, do we? (laughs) We don't need that. (laughs) That's because we're using it all the time already. Um, So you've just got to be careful about making crazy claims. In my talk there, I spoke about the fountain of wisdom, which humanity desperately needs at the moment. Where do you hope to see the next phase of research into seaweed in Australia? Well, I've been working with Dr. Pia Winberg at Venus Shell Systems on the east coast of Australia in New South Wales. And she's got an amazing system, and that captures the CO2 directly and the nutrients coming off an ethanol plant in Nowra. It's unbelievably good because it closes a loop. Um, It's capturing nutrients and capturing them for us to go into the food chain. And so that's all done with an Australian strain of ulva. There's a lot of research going on there and I'm very excited to be involved with it. That's consultant Dr Helen Fitton speaking to Larissa Smith at the International Seaweed Symposium, which is continuing today in Hobart. More than 500 delegates are attending the event this week. 
The seaweed is known to be a good source of trace minerals and elements that are not found in other plants. Deakin University researcher Vanessa Skripchak has been trying to find out how rich the minerals and elements are in Australian brown seaweed for possible use as a human food source. She spoke to our reporter Larissa Smith about her findings so far. I think the idea come from uh, some of my supervisor's previous work. Um, so she's looked a, a lot of it into um, some of the Asian countries and how they have seaweed as part of their diet quite regularly. Uh, and that was something that was missing from uh, Australia and even a lot of other countries around the world. Uh, so it was interesting to see that um, instead of a reliance on imported products, could we possibly um, create an industry in Australia with, with our lo- own local things? So. What species of seaweed did you experiment with? Um, So I had six uh, brown species, so um, they sort of varied. A lot of them were like kelps, some of them more uh, sort of fibrous browns. Yeah, so I went to list a couple of names. I had Davilia and Eclonia, um, which are probably some of the more common ones uh, around Victoria. And how much seaweed did you collect to get enough of a sample to, to start your work? Um, I didn't actually need a lot, so I um, collected a lot more than what I had. So I probably had around, um, say, a kilo of of each species, but, um, yeah, just to have some backups. But the amount that I actually needed for analysis was quite small. It might only be like a couple of grams. And the basis of uh, the aim, what were you looking to find out? Uh, I was just looking to see uh, what dietary minerals are in seaweeds to start with, um, not necessarily how they relate to um, like the dietary needs for humans but just to see what was there first um, and then yeah sort of go from there. What did you find? Uh, so I found like in general like sodium's quite high um, but that's probably to be expected because partly of the seawater um, and same thing is with iodine so that's probably the most challenging factor we've got going forth. So you looked at 12 minerals all up? Yes, yes. So, um, And how I come about those was mostly looking at food standards, Australia and New Zealand. They're the ones that they've sort of got documented information on. So I've got like recommended dietary intakes of what uh, ways people should be having each day. What is the recommended intake? Because you can have too many minerals in your diet, can't you? Yes, that's that's one of the things to consider too. Um, so for something like sodium, it's recommended to be around 2,000 milligrams per day. Um, obviously, each mineral varies, and a lot of the time it varies for gender and um, age as well. What's the take-home message then? Uh, I think the take-home message is that there's um, definitely a lot of potential with uh, Australian seaweed, both as an industry but also um, looking at it for uh, human health. But I think it's definitely important to be cautious with um, the recommendations because we don't want to tell people to go out and eat seaweed, but then it could be dangerous to them um, you know, otherwise. So things like iodine and sodium, um, we definitely can't be risking having too much of them in our diet. It's interesting hearing the conversations at this symposium because there are... There's a lot of research going on into the benefits of seaweed, but uh, at a policy level, what the government is dictating in terms of regulation is at odds with what is required. Do you find that kind of frustrating as a researcher? Uh, I think it can be because, um, and then a lot of the um, things with seaweed is that um, it's often considered a, like a food product, so it's hard to find information. Um, 
for creating regulations even. So a lot of the time might be suggesting, you know, for example, a certain quantity to consume, but um, we definitely need, I think, those government regulations to back researchers up and perhaps work with them and support them to create some, um, you know, some good levels and some good regulations going forth. What's next for your study? Uh, so the next thing we'll be looking at the other side of this work. So I've looked at the dietary minerals, but now what can be possibly toxic in, in seaweeds that we might have to watch out for before we can turn around and say to people, um, you know, seaweed's great to eat. Is this arsenic? Uh, yeah, arsenic is part of it, but also a lot of the others, like some of the other talks mentioned, like cadmium and lead, uh, mercury, all those sort of things that we don't typically um, have in the human body and we certainly don't want those things to start accumulating. No, definitely not. Vanessa Skripchek from Deakin University talking to Larissa Smith about her work researching the minerals and elements found in Australian brown seaweed to see if there's potential value there as a human food source. On our text line, Ted, g'day Ted, uh, says tiny goats are often used to clean up rough pasture, but goats and seaweed do go together goats, seaweed, and eat it. (laughs) Thank you, Ted. This is as bad as your dad's joke. Ha ha, he says. Uh, My dad's joke was the, um, why is the water wet? Because the seaweed. Yeah, I know. Uh, Coming up on the country, are investing possible or investigating a possible case of mad cow disease in Brazil. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And another text, this one from Alistair who says, Tony, we still don't have the enzymes for digesting seaweeds. We can only get some minerals from them. That's from Alistair. Thank you for that. 0438922936, that text line number. Well, the world's largest beef exporting country is moving quickly to test a possible case of BSE or mad cow disease found in the country. Case of the disease has been found in Brazil with tests being sent to Canada for confirmation. The latest case was found in Brazil back in 2021 and it shut down exports from that country to China for three months. Warwick Long spoke to Simon Quilty from Global Agritrends about what the latest development means. Well, there was a uh, recent um, testing of positive for an atypical variety of mad cow disease, other um, BSE as we know it, um, that was sent through and it's on its way to Canada to have it counterproofed um, to ensure um, what it is. So at the moment, yes, there has been a case of mad cow disease, BSE, within Brazil. And Warwick, if you recall back to 2021, when this occurred the last time, there was a three-month ban in place, self-imposed between Brazil and China. So I suppose the the wait is on to see if these tests in Canada show up the BSE to be 
a confirmed case and then this could happen again in terms of closures and so forth? Possibly. At the moment, the health protocol between the two countries, Brazil and China, which was signed back in 2015, it's the obligation of Brazil to report a case to Beijing and then to impose a self-embargo on shipments with the you know, immediate suspension of exports. And that embargo is always meant to be temporary until more clarification is got around you know, what the situation is, whether it's atyp- atypical or not. So Brazil, largest beef exporter in the world, what potential ramifications does this have for the world market? It's quite significant. If you remember back then when it happened um, in t- 2021, at the time, they were shipping in excess of 100,000 tonnes of beef into that market. Production slowed down dramatically as they looked to divert away. And as you might say, negotiations were between the two governments. Those negotiations were protracted, there's no doubt. And we did see a lot move across into North America at the time, which then led to the triggering of beef quotas in the North American market. So the significance is there, no doubt, and the potential um, impact on global markets, I think, could be quite extensive if it is protracted, if it's short and sharp and it's put and dealt with quickly, then it will be a limited impact, I think, on global markets. And I suppose we're really early days in this and we're still waiting for, for a number of confirmations. So at the moment, it's a watching brief? Yes, it is. I think, you know, it's just a matter of watching. But from an Australian point of view, I guess the two markets that will be impacted potentially is obviously China itself. And then within the US as well, as product potentially could be rediverted. But I think it also places some interesting dynamics with Korea and Japan, because if suddenly China is not receiving meat out of Brazil, we could see a quick response from China for Australian product which in turn could see Japan and Korea step back in looking for Australian products as well. And that's the interesting thing, I suppose, for the Australian farmer to be watching in this space is there has been a warming of China and Australian trade uh, in recent months. We just saw a record month of mutton to China, for example, in January. If China starts looking elsewhere for, for red meat, particularly beef, Australia could be in a good position. Is that fair enough to say? I think that's very fair to say, Warwick. And I guess the 11 meat plants that are waiting on getting their licences back to China, we believe that's hopefully within days or weeks that that occurs. The timing couldn't be better. So from an Australian point of view, for once, the stars are aligning, Warwick. So as you understand it, what are the steps from here, from this possible BSE case, mad cow case in Brazil? I think that the, the first step is to wait and see what the Canadians um, testing the results of theirs is. If it proves that it is positive and it is a classical um, BSE case, not a atypical, then obviously things get a lot more serious. If it's proven to be atypical, it may be that things are resolved quickly. But saying that, we saw back in 2021, it was two atypical cases that still led to a three-month ban. So I think, Warwick, it's really a bit difficult to say, and really those results are critical from Canada 
to then understand what the next steps will be. Simon Quilty from Global Agri-Trends speaking there to Warwick Long about a possible case of mad cow disease found in that country, Brazil, the largest exporter of beef in the world. Last year they sent 1.1 million metric tonnes of beef to China, which was 40% of that country's beef imports, so certainly something to watch. There have been two new detections of the deadly varroa mite on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, which authorities say are linked to the illegal movement of beehives. The Department of Primary Industries in that state says the sites at Taree and nearby Werrell Flat are linked to properties in current eradication zones in the Hunter Valley. The DPI's varroa mite response coordinator, Chris Anderson, has told Emma Siosian two new red zones have been established. So we have obviously launched an investigation into how this has happened. As part of our response to this, we have taken samples from these bees and found low-level infestation of varroa. Both of these movements, they're they're unrelated to one another. It's just coincidental that they both ended up in a similar area and they have all come from the Hunter region from within restricted areas. So we have declared two uh, emergency management zones around these two detections. So there's two, the red 10-kilometre eradication zones and... Uh, purple surveillance zones around each detection. We have been contacting beekeepers who are located within these zones and we are also asking all beekeepers, uh, you can go to our website, you'll be able to see the map and on the map you'll be able to work out whether your apiary sites are within these zones and we, we will need you to fill out a form on our website and notify the location of those apiaries to us. We will then commence the eradication process within the red 10 kilometre zone and we will be contacting beekeepers to talk them through what that means for them um, and how they can uh, apply for reimbursement costs. And I understand that there have been some hives moved from that area out to other areas? Yes, yeah, so we have a hive movement declaration system in New South Wales for the Um, what's known as the general emergency zone or the blue zone, which is the larger part of New South Wales that's not affected by Varroa. And that's the very reason that we have it, um, is so that when we do uh, find a new detection, in this case as a result of illegal movement of hives, we can look up the the system and determine who has been there and where they have moved to. And so, yes, that's correct. We've located um, a small number of beekeepers uh, and, and that's Uh, We're we're getting new information every day uh, from the beekeeping industry around other beekeepers who may be impacted by those zones and may have moved as well. So we will be following up with those people in the coming days uh, and testing and checking hives. The New South Wales Apiarist Association President, Steve Fuller, says it's a setback for the industry. Well, this is we, we, we had it really under control. It's, uh, it's the last thing we want to see. It's put a spanner in the works in a big way. We didn't need this. We've been doing so well. There's been so much work and effort put into it. It's really sad to see something like this happen. I mean, it's been a long journey since that first detection in 2022. How is the industry coping? Look, some of the industry is okay, but not 100%. It's been a hard couple of years, not just with Farol, but even the, the floods. So it's really pushing the industry backwards. Steve Fuller, President of the New South Wales Apiarists Association, ending that report by Emma Siosian. On two new detections of the deadly varroa mite on the mid-north coast away from the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. Well, more and more, we're seeing the expansion of gluten-free products down on our supermarket aisles. But growing one of the key ingredients, psyllium husks, is often very difficult. With the market size of gluten-free foods expected to reach 8.3 billion US dollars in 2025, 
Researchers were just in time to find a way to make growing the popular fibre supplement a lot easier. Dr James Cowley, researcher with the University of Adelaide, says the first-time discovery will now move into a breeding program. So what we've discovered is the first high-quality reference genome for a crop called Plantago ovata. Um, It's the source of a really important dietary fibre supplement called psyllium husk that we also uh, use in a lot of gluten-free foods. So it's a key product in uh, a lot of gluten-free breads and uh, it's important for quality for people that want to eat gluten-free. So with this understanding of this genome, what can that mean for expanding gluten-free food options? So basically the production of psyllium is is quite poor in a lot of places because it's affected by a lot of disease and it's affected by drought. And normally we'd be able to get over those problems by breeding the species, but we've we've struggled to do this up until now because we've lacked a reference genome that allows us to guide the breeding programs to try and improve it and and increase drought tolerance and disease tolerance. And so now with this new resource, uh, we're able to guide the programs a lot faster and generate new varieties in a much quicker fashion. So what is the next step? Is it moving towards a breeding program? Yeah, so the next step would be to introduce the information into our breeding program so that we can better uh, characterise our varieties and produce better varieties for Australian farmers and farmers around the world. And then in what time period are we looking at that being accessible for farmers? Um, So right now it's in very early stages. Um, We're doing pre-breeding work to develop the technologies to be able to breed. So breeding programs do take a long time because they require a lot of seasons. So this is probably uh, five, ten years plus down the track. Because of the size of the gluten-free industry is expanding, was there more pressure to find a solution quicker? Yeah, definitely. So there was a really high uh, demand for these genomes because, as I said, the supply and demand is really high and being able to supply sufficient product um, is being a real challenge for the growers around the world. And so really the first port of call was to generate this genome to make everything else subsequent to this a lot faster um, and to get the varieties out there a lot quicker. Whereabouts is a majority of psyllium being supplied from at the moment? So the majority of psyllium currently is produced in uh, mostly in India and Pakistan, um, but we're exploring options uh, that are in Australia that we can uh, grow and uh, grow in a mechanised fashion that's a lot faster. And it's always been on our radar because the supply is critical and the supply that comes out of where it's currently grown fluctuates with with, uh, environmental conditions. And so the supply and demand is is really, really high uh, from these the companies that use psyllium husk and so being able to generate this genome to try and stabilize those supply and demand problems makes it a much more productive environment to be growing and using these products. What are some examples that you are predicting we can see psyllium husks move into in in terms of other gluten-free foods? Um, Psyllium has a lot of uh, a really wide variety of uses that it could be used for. Uh, Gluten-free breads are the main one um, but we're looking into all sorts of avenues for delivering these fibres uh, into people's diets, uh, things like uh, fortifying soups and uh, adding extra dietary fibre into uh, other bakery products that uh, people might not necessarily get a lot of fibre from in their diet. That's Dr James Cowley, researcher with the University of Adelaide, speaking there with Demetria Panagiotaris about psyllium husks for gluten-free food. Coming up on The Country Hour, research into an alternative method of shearing. 
and goat meat popularity on the rise, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Lucy Shannon. Thanks, Tony. And News Justine, an inquest can't begin into the deaths of six Tasmanian children in a jumping castle accident because WorkSafe Tasmania is refusing to release its investigation. Six children died in December 2021 when a jumping castle was blown into the air during an end-of-year celebration at Hillcrest Primary School in Devonport. During a pre-inquest hearing this morning, it was revealed WorkSafe Tasmania is refusing to provide its report because it believes it will prejudice its own prosecutions. The coroner said it was unfortunate and the inquest was adjourned pending a decision in the Supreme Court in April. And briefly, Australia has now joined a group of more than 30 countries seeking to ban Russian and Belarusian athletes from competing in international sporting events. The International Olympic Committee suggests Russian and Belarusian athletes should compete but not under their national flags. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. How you going, all right? Yeah, good. It's it's a bit cool, isn't it, around uh, around the south of the state anyway at the moment? Yeah, got half a puffer jacket on, you know, the vest jacket, <laughs> which is really yeah, it's weird. Only, it's only 14 degrees here in Hobart. <laughs> but, uh, I'm thinking, what's going on? It's still summer, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it last time I looked? Yeah, that's right. It should be, shouldn't it? Mm. Yeah. So, Launceston's only, uh, at the moment, only is, is 20 degrees, so it's warm up there in the north. Maybe we should all pack up and move. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> Don't know if they'd want us, though, would they? Yeah. <laughs> um, what's happening with the weather, then? You've got a bit of everything at the moment, a little bit of rainfall out there, too? Yeah, there's a few little light showers about in the south. They should be easing very soon, Um and uh, that, that starts the stint of, of fine days up to at least Friday and gradually warming days as well. We're moving up into a possible hot day on Friday. So a lot of, a lot of the state, especially around the south, could get temperatures in the low 30s to even the mid 30s uh, in the upper Doon and around the southeast perhaps on Friday. Every day from now on, the temperatures will go up a few degrees. So you notice a step up each day probably um, through most of the state. And the reason for that is a high-pressure system's moving off to our east, and then that starts the northerly winds blowing from uh, from tomorrow um, up till Friday when they'll they'll get quite warm. Yeah, and warm, as in up to thirty-five degrees, I believe. Yeah, I was at, yeah, uh, thirty-four, the current one for for Hobart, but there, there a few places could get thirty-five, um, definitely. Okay, um, now what will happen after that? Uh, after that, we get a, an, another uh, spell of quite settled weather with an, another high-pressure ridge coming over. So it looks like early next week it will be settled as well. Um, so uh, if that's if that's what you like, that's that's good, isn't it? Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> so around about average summary temperatures. For yes, that's right. Yep. Back to low twenties. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, now warnings. Have we got any at the moment? Yeah, we just have a few wind warnings as as is usual. We've got a strong warning for Bank Strait and Franklin Sound, east of Flinders and upper east coast today. And then tomorrow we've got strong wind warnings for southern, western and northern waters from Tasman Island all the way around to Cape Portland. And the coastal waters and swell, Michael, what's happening out on the waters? Yeah, sure. The, the winds today, uh, we've got um, south to southwesterlies, um, 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots at times about the northeast. 
Winds tend south to southeasterly, 15 to 25 knots throughout later in the afternoon. The winds tomorrow, southeast to northeasterly, is at 15 to 25 knots, although only reaching about 5 to 15 about the south and the east in the morning. Winds are reaching up to 30 knots at times in the northwest and about the south in the evening. The swells about in the west and the south, you've got a southwesterly swell today of three to four metres, um, rising up to, uh, reaching up to five metres in the south. Tomorrow there's a swell, uh, southwesterly swell of two to three metres and then decaying to one to two metres in the afternoon. In the north, there's a westerly swell up to one metre offshore today and then under one metre tomorrow. In the east, a southerly swell of one to two metres with a three metres southwesterly offshore in the south. Tomorrow, a southerly swell decays a bit to one and one to one and a half metres uh, with a two to three metres southwesterly offshore in the south. And the wave runners? Cape Sorrel at the moment is at four metres and Mariah Island is at 1.8 metres. About the same as yesterday, Yeah, yeah, not much change. <laughs> All right, Michael, thank you for that. Cheers. Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you. On our text line, Ray says... Hi, it's okay to look at the further use and advantages of a seaweed, e.g. kelp, but we must not forget the essential need to safeguard marine life habitat with kelp, etc. as well. Yeah, good point. Thank you for that, Ray. 0438 922 is that text line number. 0438 922 A look at alternatives to shearing in just a moment. Available now on ABC Listen. Enjoy our library of great Aussie audiobooks all summer long, free to stream on the ABC Listen app. With a collection of fiction and non-fiction titles, including The Messenger by Marcus Suzak. Now hang on a second. Marv's getting all offended again. Since you're holding up the bank, the least you can do is pay my parking fine, don't you think? A great range of ABC audiobooks, free to stream on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Took about goats very shortly, but first to wool. And Australian Wool Innovation says it's investing heavily in developing an alternative to traditional shearing. Wool growers have been telling AWI that the shearer shortage is the biggest issue facing farmers right now. However, the grower-funded Research and Development Corporation says it's reluctant to reduce the spend on marketing to fund extra research. Jock Laurie is a wool grower from Walker, chair of the Australian Wool Innovation, and he's speaking here to our reporter Josh Becker. It's certainly everywhere we're going, people are talking about it, uh, and that's not to myself, that's to the board members and to staff uh, especially. The WICP, which is the Wool Industry Consulting Panel, which we deal with and had a meeting only last week, we're very clear that shearing is an issue. Uh, we're getting regular phone calls from people across Australia who are having uh, trouble at the moment, and um, and we just know that um, from all the information that we're getting across Australia, not just in individual pockets, right from across Australia, that it is the number one problem that the industry is facing at the moment. When it comes to shearer retention, do you have any data on how long shearers are staying in the industry? Uh, look, I think that's varying. I know that some people have sort of been coming back into the game a bit, you know, in the, in the last while to try and ease the pressure. So some going out and some coming in. A lot of the new learner shearers we're getting into the sheds at the moment, we're retaining uh, fairly high rates of those, which I think is very important. And, and obviously the in-shed training and the other training that's going on, sort of the novice area, 
is important too because that's helping upskill all of those people. So, look, I think the very reason for people coming in and going out of shearing um, and at varying ages too, it's really hard to know. We don't have any solid data, but you've only got to go into the sheds and talk to people to understand that, you know, there are different reasons why people are staying in or different reasons why they're going out and um, different ages also. Have you discussed uh, visas with the federal government and whether there are options to get Pacific workers or South American workers as shearers or shed hands? Uh, look, this is where the the issue is, right? AWI is a research and development and extension company. So we can do work in modules, we can do work in training, we can do work in uh, chemical defleecing, biological defleecing, further work on that. We can do all of that sort of work. When it comes to the political area, the wool industry representative groups, that is their clear role. And that is to talk to um, government around uh, visas, opportunities for ag visas, Pacific Island scheme visas, making sure the shearer, uh, the shearing is one of the skills that's required into Australia uh, and it doesn't have age limits on on visa opportunities coming in. So the, the wool industry representative groups really need to step into that space. We can do what we can do uh, and we simply can't deal with the political or policy area because that is not AWI's role. You mentioned the uh, chemical defleecing or biological defleecing. Is there a time frame in mind that you have for when an alternative wool harvesting approach like that might be on the table? Uh, look, my time uh, frame is yesterday. Um, science and research doesn't necessarily follow my time frame or the industry time frame. What we have to do is invest um, as much as we possibly can in the areas that we need to. Uh, and don't be frightened to invest, um, especially when you're looking at providing a new tool and getting the researchers to understand how critically important it is that they work as quickly as they possibly can, develop what they possibly can as quickly as they can, and get it into the commercial environment. Having said all of that, you know, there will be APVMA approvals and all sorts of things that they need to go through. And once again, that's where the wool industry representative groups need to be talking to make sure that, uh, that those processes are, are quick speedy uh, and allow the opportunity well certainly allow everybody to understand how critically important this is to the industry at the moment and make sure that they can be actually put into the commercial environment so people can utilize them asap if they do come onto the market the first thing we've got to do is make sure that we invest heavily to find alternatives we know that we've got some very positive stuff happening but we need to continue to invest and continue to uh, support and apply as much pressure as we can to get outcomes. Are you working with any engineering companies that would look at taking the wool off the sheep um, that use these biological defleecing approaches? Right. So the first phase is that we've got to go through and continue the research to, to shore it up. First, understand how the, the protein could be administered to, make, administered to make sure that you can get a break in, in a consistent fashion. The second phase will be doing engineering or designing engineering that actually allows the police to be removed. And what we do know is that there are many um, people in the wool industry, wool growers themselves, who are very, very good inventors, have got some very good ideas. And I would say that working, and we've already discussed this, working with engineers to look at developing uh, ways of actually removing the police and then getting it either into a wool press or into a wool bin uh, without having a, a whole lot of handling, um, you know, there's a lot of lot of work to be done there. Uh, and it's very clear in our mind that that will be done and that will be done fairly soon. And obviously trials to make sure that we can progress all of this stuff is also going to be critical. As you say, shearing's the, the biggest issue for wool growers at the moment. A lot of these issues that you're uh, investing in is in this research space at the moment and delivery. 
Does it uh, make you rethink whether to revisit the split between research and marketing from Australian wool innovation, putting more money into research to address this biggest issue at the moment for wool growers? Look, we've always been um, clear that the 60-40 basis that we work on is a um, it's a very good indicator of where the company will be investing and it's sort of an agreed position within the industry and the government and everybody realises that's where we're going. So we don't need to have an argument around, around where that's going at the moment. But if there are areas where we need to invest because we can clearly show that it is absolutely critical, then we'd be, we'd be talking to the industry to make sure that they're happy for us to, to go down that path. So once again, I have a look at it. But I do say on the other side, um, the marketing is a critically important thing. We need to continue to defend the position of wool in the international market space and we need to continue to build our support for wool and, and the purchase power of wool in the international marketplace. And if we don't get into the market and continue to market the product, then you'd have to ask the question whether you know we would drop off the radar. Um, I think the work that's being done is really showing some very good signs. Uh, and I think it's uh, money, very, uh, money very well invested. Certainly the Echo campaign has, um, you know, really triggered a, an interest around the environmental debate around around fibres and that's been critically important. And I know that a lot of the other um, products that are being de- designed in the sportswear, athleisure wear sector are, you know, going particularly well. So we must continue to build demand for the product. Um, and at the same time, we've got to make sure that we can actually get the product off and keep people in the wool industry longer term. Wool grower Jock Laurie, who's also chair of the Australian Wool Innovation, speaking there to Josh Becker about issues around the wool industry. Max from Marawar on the uh, West Coast says, uh, G'day, Tony. Does Ray know that the kelp harvested on the West Coast is what is washed up? It is not cut down. Good on you, Max. Thank you for that. And, uh, yeah, we did a good story recently on uh, on the kelp, which is washed up on the beach at uh, on the West Coast. Fantastic. Well, picturesque property overlooking Bass Strait in Tasmania's northwest is home to a small but contented herd of boar goats. Jess Viney is the owner of the Jilly Jack Boar Goats at Penguin. I spoke to our reporter Madeline Rojan about the journey to farm goats and the choice of boar goats for the property. We currently run about 70 goats at the moment between our does and our couple of bucks that we run. We started up about five years ago now, just under, so we've slowly built numbers over that time. And um, how did you get into it? We bought some land and were trying to work out what we could get in to help keep the grass down and help us manage the land and my husband suggested goats. I'd never had goats before, so we bought our first three, Jill Lily and Jack, which is how we got our stud name. Um, and then we soon added Mildred to that, who was a crossbred. And just numbers grew. We fell in love with the breed. We fell in love with the animal and realised there was a market for it. So it just grew from there, really. Not that it's a competition, but a goat's better than sheep? By far superior to sheep. Absolutely. I am not a sheep person. I am goat person through and through. We have had sheep and we will not be having sheep again. I wasn't expecting such a strong reaction, but I love it. (laughs) Yes, I should have loved them. We had bottle lambs and we raised them inside and we looked after them and I should have been so attached to them, but I just really wasn't. The happiest day of their existence for me was when they went to freezer camp. So 
that was the end of our sheep journey. What should people look out for if they're looking for a good goat? So you're wanting a for Tasmania, the biggest thing I can suggest is look for lines with good feet. We have a really wet environment here. These animals are originally from hot, dry environments, so you're looking for goats who are going to have feet that can withstand the Tassie conditions. Um, and you're looking for good natures. You're looking for goats that are going to... Ours are meat goats, so you're looking for a goat that has a frame that is going to support a good capacity of meat on that frame, especially if you're looking at then breeding for consumption. And I look for temperament because I do a lot of the work with the goats on my own, so I need animals that are going to be easy enough for me to handle without being worried about getting injured. So for me that's super important as well. And so what is the breed that you are working with? We run boar goats and they are beautiful. They have really lovely temperaments. I find them a joy to work with. They can be ornery as all goats can but for the most part I find them really enjoyable. And you've got kids as well? Yes, I have two children. I have two skin children. I have my daughter who loves the goats and my son who's not so fussed on the goats but he will come out and help out at kidding time and things like this because he doesn't mind the babies. And um, you sell the goats as well. Whereabouts do you find yourself selling them to? Is it just around Tasmania or further than that? At this point in time, all our sales have been based within Tasmania. We do have... Um, a little bit of a wait list at times just because we are smaller in numbers so we do not produce copious amounts of goats to sell unfortunately so my stock that people are buying for breeding tends to has gone south of Hobart or around the northwest coast Um, and then we do sell our weathers as to be grown out for consumption as well so they get sold to a local person out here who grows them out and then sells them on. And have you been finding there's a lot of demand for goats? What's the market like? For goat meat, the demand is really high, actually. I was surprised um, in Tasmania, and it's only growing, which is fantastic, because I find that I probably a rather underutilised protein. It is quite lean. It's very flavoursome. There is a real prior conceptions of people that for goat meat that it's going to be gamey, that it's going to be really strong tasting meat, which it's not. It's really quite nice and especially the boar goat meat, it's a, quite a fine grained, lighter taste. It's not that gamey that you can get with other sort of um, the rangeland breeds and things like this. So yeah, and the demand is definitely there and it is only growing. So lots of work for you coming up. <laughs> yes, always a lot of work to be done with the goats, but it's all very rewarding. Have you been finding any challenges being part of the industry? Apart from the challenges, as I mentioned before, with the Tasmanian conditions, so with feet and also you can have some issues with worms because of just the conditions in Tasmania. Apart from that, I've found the industry really very welcoming. I'm, the breed societies have been fantastic and they are more than happy to um, share their knowledge. I've got several more advanced um, more experienced breeders who I can call on and they are always happy to help and I've just found that really excellent and it's just a really nice welcoming sort of a place to be really. So what do you do with the the challenges of wet feet and the environmental um, issues there? Well we selectively breed so if we have found that we have certain lines that their feet can't cope with the Tasmanian conditions. We do try and just not breed from those lines anymore. As with any animal, you're selectively breeding to enhance those characteristics which you want to have as part of your herd, basically. That's Borgert breeder Jess Viney talking to Madeline Rojan about her farm at beautiful Penguin 
in the state's northwest. Very contented goats on that farm. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Don't forget to head on to our ABC Rural online page and you'll see plenty of great stories there, including uh, the one from Larissa Smith about the robot strawberry picker. You can have a look at uh, that robot strawberry picker online at ABC Rural and also our ABC Rural Facebook page. Plenty of great stories there as well. And you can make a comment or two if you wish. Well, there's an exciting trend in fishing catching on in Australia with pest-busting anglers deliberately targeting invasive fighting species. As Jennifer Nichols found out, they won't be able to halt the spread of the cane toads of the water, but combined with restocking native fish and education, their efforts are making a difference. I got that other big one, Paul. Like I could see him in the nest, and so I just dropped it in the nest and waited for him. When Jason Murdoch survived two heart attacks in three days at the age of 42, he decided life was too short to not pursue a passion with purpose. He's got a bit of spirit, this one. The first time he tried pest fishing, he was hooked. In the space of an hour, I caught seven fish and I just thought, how good is this? Just had an absolute ball and have been passionate about it ever since. In a man-made lake in suburban southeast Queensland, Mr Murdoch discovered an environmental battleground where native fish are being outcompeted by one of the world's most invasive fish, an aggressive species called Mozambique tilapia. Just look down into the water or you can see your schools of these fish. A telltale sign is their nests, white round patches stripped of aquatic plants. You catch them on worms, you catch them on lures, they're predatory and they will attack to defend their nests, they will eat other smaller fish and I thought well why not combine my love of fishing with doing something good for the environment and trying to remove as many of these pests as I can. Pest fish busting is a catching trend with Facebook community groups and YouTube channels committed to the cause. The eco-anglers are targeting carp and tilapia, a noxious species which were introduced to Australia in the 1970s as an ornamental aquarium fish. Described as the cane toads of our waterways, Mozambique tilapia are considered one of the greatest threats to Australia's aquatic ecosystem. They're found across the eastern seaboard from Victoria to far north Queensland and in western Australian waterways north of Geraldton. The Northern Territory and South Australia are on alert. Making sure that it doesn't get into places like the Murray-Darling Basin is going to be quite critical because once it gets into the Murray-Darling Basin, we'll find it spread through 
southern portions of Queensland right through to South Australia quite rapidly. And that will be a disaster for those environments. James Trezise is the Invasive Species Council's Conservation Director. He says tilapia are a real threat. They thrive in warmer waters but can cope with conditions between 8 to 42 degrees. Tilapia can survive in both salty and oxygen-starved waters and invade lakes, ponds, reservoirs, rivers, creeks, drains, swamps and tidal creeks. And what we also need to see is concerted action to suppress and control and try and eradicate tilapia populations where it currently exists and that involves investing the resources and funding to get on top of these infestations. Fisheries Queensland and New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia have put a group together. There's a realisation that tilapia is no longer a Queensland problem, it's becoming a national problem. As president of the Queensland Freshwater Fishing and Stocking Association, Charlie Ladd's eager to educate anglers. Although tilapia are a popular aquaculture species overseas, it's illegal to keep them in Australia. There's a lot of people now in our community come from countries where tilapia is their primary food for protein. But here there is strict law that if you do catch a tilapia or a carp, same rules apply, that you must kill the fish humanely and dispose of it either bin or bury. You cannot use any part of the fish. You can't take a fillet off and throw the frame away and take the fillet home. There's good reason for this. Mozambique tilapia are mouth breeders. Females gather up eggs from the male's nests and carry them in their mouths until well after they hatch. Both the eggs and baby fish can survive if their mother dies. And if we don't dispose of the fish properly, there's the chance of a young or eggs getting back into the water. But also too, if you allow people to take them home, it then puts a value on the fish where people then will be encouraged to spread them around. Pest fishing competitions backed up by native fish restocking programs are one way to make a difference. Pest fish comp, you remove the big fish that breed, and if you stock with bass and Mary River cod, they all take on their young. They will eat the young, so you're attacking it from two fronts. In one of the lakes Charlie Ladd's been targeting, they're now catching more native fish than tilapia. You'll always have pissed fish there, but if you can keep native fish population stocks up, you've got a chance of controlling them. Gold Coast City Councillor Herman Vorster and the Gold Coast Fishing Fanatics hold an annual fishing competition, removing around a tonne of tilapia and carp in just one day. We get hundreds of anglers there on their kayaks and from the shores pulling these fish out. It is an enormous amount of biomass. But Samantha Beck would like authorities to go further and reconsider bans on fishing in some freshwater areas. It seems like they're being protected to a point. Some councils have tried to do things about them. Whether they're doing enough, uh, that's not for me to say. Ms Beckman owns two bent rods. She runs pest fishing competitions in conjunction with local councils, but says bans on fishing in some freshwater areas need to be reconsidered to reduce the pest load. They're all over the place. We run from the Gold Coast to Marucci Door and they're in nearly every waterway. Passionate pest busters like Jason Murdoch are keen to do their bit. Every fish I remove is one that's not going to breed. Some people might go, you're crazy, you can't take these fish home. You're fishing and never taking fish that you can eat. Correct. I fish for the love of fishing. And also, if I can do something for the environment to remove these pests, then I'm happy to do it. And I'm also, if I want to have fish for dinner, I'm more than happy to support my local fish and chip shop. Yeah, Jason Murdoch, a pest fish buster. Ending that story from Jennifer Nichols, where anglers are targeting invasive fighting species. Um, Just actually on the... uh, ABC Rural Online page right now. Just having a look at the uh, straw, strawberry picking robot. There's a great video of uh, 
the robot picking the strawberries. Go and have a look. ABC Rural Online. Uh, we'll have some more seaweed stories from the uh, seaweed conference tomorrow on the program. Also, Richard Barney will be along. Uh, the power rent sale underway at the moment, so we'll have details of the livestock markets as well. That's our program for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.